0: Oh, got it. Well, we are back. I am Andrew Langer. So glad you can join us. Listen, as I've as I I just said to our guest, uh, this is really the uh, the best one of the best parts of my job. And this this is even better because it's the intersection of two things that I love. Uh, talking to people who've been into space. I've interviewed a number of astronauts, as you all know, uh, but also talking to people that I went to high school with. Um, uh, we've had a number of those guests on over the years. Here's a great intersection. Joining me uh, today is Glenn DeVries. Uh, he was one of the Blue Origin astronauts um, uh, to go up just a couple of weeks ago. We're so glad he can join us. He is also, wait, Let me Glenn, let me make sure I pull up your bio here. Uh to make sure I have it, I uh, E Glenn founded Metadata Solutions in 1999. They were acquired by Dassault Systems um uh, in 2019. He's on uh, right you're the uh, the vice chair of life, life Sciences and Healthcare there. We're going to talk about your philanthropy, you're going to talk about your time at Carnegie Mellon. Um but uh, and you're you're a trustee at Carnegie Mellon as well and what the founder of water.org also at Captain Clinical on Twitter. You should definitely follow him there. Uh, so so Glenn, I mean, listen, I was absolutely thrilled when uh, our friend Jesse Lunenpak messaged me on Facebook. He says, you're not going to believe this. Glenn is going up in the Blue Origin uh, of spaceship. But let's start here, because so you all know, Glenn and I went to high school together. Uh, we weren't the same year. He was a year behind me. We were part of the same friend group. Have you always been a space nut? Were you a space nut when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, actually, um, Jesse and I sat next to each other in the front center of every science class, I think, at Fieldston. And um, not just uh, Jesse, but people who I knew from grade school came out of the woodwork and kind of emailed me and found me. And people
0: were saying, you've been talking about this your whole life. I can't (laughs) believe you're actually going. I mean did you you know obviously you didn't have, well we're gonna talk about your career but i mean this was this was a winding path because this is like a, a bank shot so like i was when i was a kid i was a space nut uh I, neil armstrong was my hero uh I, I i found that a i didn't have the aptitude for math which we all know you just spending time trying to listen to me do math on the air i don't i don't have that but i also was too tall um so it was a, but i mean so i i didn't i didn't get to go but i mean so did you when you went to Carnegie Mellon, did you think that this was someplace you were going to go or no, I know
1: I did. I mean, and and I definitely spent, I think, my whole life um, kind of fa- fantasizing if I yeah. can you, worried about going to space. I, I, I even today. Um, in my bedroom, I have lamps that are next to the side of my bed that kind of look a little bit like jet engines. Okay. You know, unless I told you that. And it's literally like Star Wars sheets for a 49 year old. Like, like <laughs> in, in, in fact, just like a huge fast forward, like it feels really weird to go to bed and actually think about being in space, not yeah. just emphasizing about going. But that was my life. Like I always thought about that. But I, as as you know, I was like the consummate science nerd. Right. Yes. So it didn't matter if it was physics or chemistry or biology. And professionally, I wound up. Going down the biology route and winding up in in health in healthcare and life sciences, Um, but it's not like the space part ever went away. My interest went from you know molecules to cosmology, and and engineering was always a
0: passion. I always um, spaceships and planes were the coolest thing. So yeah, it was always there. Did Um, you did you have that space shuttle? I want to say it was called the space shuttle construction book. There was, I think the book you're thinking about, the one I had was the Space Shuttle
1: Operators That's it.
0: Yes, that's exactly it.
1: And it has, um, uh, literally there's a copy in the (laughs) other room. It has excerpts from from, uh, NASA procedure manuals and diagrams of all the panels. And I would pour over that book for hours. Yeah. Looking at it, thinking about putting on a spacesuit.
0: I mean, every little last detail was something that I I just loved. So- Um, yeah. No, I was just gonna say, because I I dressed up as Neil Armstrong for a fifth grade. I had to read a biography. We had to read a biography of an explorer. I chose Neil Armstrong dressed as Neil Armstrong for the presentation. I'm sure you went down that road as well. That's a pretty good, pretty good one. Yeah. I, yeah, I, thank you. I definitely had a lot of a lot of space themed <laughs> life. So. so So okay. So let's let's talk about so you're We're going to talk about your journey in a minute, because my I know my listeners and viewers want to talk about your entrepreneurship journey. But before we before we get to all that, I mean, let's talk about how this particular trip came about. Uh, You know, you reached out to, you know, was it the Blue Origin? You know, you heard that they were looking for folks. Well, how did this how did this happen? Yeah. So, so
1: honestly, I probably about nine years ago, nine and a half years ago, um, because of Virgin Galactic, I realized like people could go to space, like this might actually become a a thing. And, and so I was interested since then. And I've been really interested. I've been lucky enough in my career uh, that I've was in a position where i thought oh like not only is this starting to become possible when i was watching blue origin who was making tremendous progress but like um i, I might actually be able to afford to do this too <laughs> and so you know blue origin did an auction. i participated in the auction which i'm sure put me on there kind of we were serious and um you have to talk to blue origin about the selection process i sure. actually know what it really well, was, but you know, if you look at people like uh, Chris Bosshausen and myself, we were two of the first you know, paying customers. I think they were they're looking for people who really could advocate for why this was so important and, and hopefully bring this kind of message yep. to the world. And so I got to be in the lucky Venn diagram place of that. And when they called and said, would you like to go? It took me about a millisecond. To
0: <laughs> yes, I, I understand. That. You know, it's funny you say that because and I'm sorry if you can hear my dog in the background. Okay. Um, so because I have this issue of private spaceflight is one that I've been involved in. In my policy world, about ten years ago, I, I spoke up on Capitol Hill at the founding of something called the Competitive Space Task Force.
1: I saw your I saw your presentation.
0: Oh, there you go. Thank you. Oh, wow that 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 blows me away. And, and so this idea, right, that we have government sponsored space flight, in, yeah. just in the same way that we had government sponsored exploration of the high seas, gives rise to this idea of private space exploration. Uh, obviously, it's. Um, uh, obviously, it it there's there's a, a quite a bit at stake here, yeah. but uh, um, but then you have these issues of uh, of uh, but really it's it's all about about economies of scale and all of that. But talk about that. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, so, so so I, I do um, have now a couple decades of experience in life sciences, and yes, I honestly, I honestly think I've seen this movie before, and. <laughs> Uh, in a good way, right? So, so if we were sitting around waiting for governments to create cures for rare diseases, um, cancers, vaccines, whatever you're, yeah. whatever you're waiting for, imagine if we were just waiting for governments to to get that done. Yes, and, and I think that the answer um, on, would probably, unfortunately, be that we'd be waiting a really <laughs> long time, if not forever, for a lot of things. In life sciences, you've got regulators, and I am always the first um, in my professional pursuits to come to the defense of regulators. Sometimes people are like, oh, they're slowing things down. No, these are people who, of course, every every bunch of apples has maybe a bad one in there too, but sure. in general, people who are at the FDA care about public safety yes. and protecting the public. So you've got the this re- layer of regulators. Then you've got academic institutions and publicly funded organizations like the NIH, the National Cancer Institute, universities that work together, and they create this kind of academic and intellectual fabric that underlies the life sciences industry. Then you've got Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and Moderna and Sanofi and and all these companies, large and small, this industry stack on top. And I also am not going to pretend that it always works perfectly. Sure. It works well. and you get this virtuous cycle of innovation that is supported by the regulators, supported by this academic fabric, but fueled largely by an industry. Yes. If you think about space, there's the FAA and there's NASA, and I'm being very US-centric in this, but you can use this in any country. And what we didn't have for the last 60 years, and I shouldn't say last six years, because these companies have been working for for 10, 20 years now, but you've got SpaceX, and you've got Blue Origin, and you've got Virgin Galactic, and you've got Axiom, and you've got companies large and small, everything from big pharma to biotech conceptually, that has made a stack that looks just like life sciences. Sure. And so I feel like that is going to be this now innovation engine. And so look, let me go back to private space travel for a second. Absolutely. It is a huge privilege for personally to be able to go do this um, and have this experience. But I am telling you that part of the privilege is realizing that we are at the beginning of this space yeah. industry taking off. Put it in, in math terms that hopefully are okay. <laughs> No, please go right ahead. No, it's fine. So so Yuri Gagarin, Alan Shepard, right? First couple of people in space. This is about 60 years ago. I I think my official space number is the 582nd person in space. Nice. took us 60 years to get about 600 people in space. If you look at Blue Origin, SpaceX, the Russian Space Agency, China, everybody who's going to put people in space, Virgin Galactic will probably get a couple more in space next year we're probably going to put more than a hundred people in space in 2022. Wow. A sixth of what took 60 years in a year. So this is the year that people go to space. And I think this is about the privilege to me is about equity and access. Yeah. Yeah, I had a privilege of going early, but I think, do we, we ever go on the, I think it was maybe different uh, grades, like the circle line together. I remember. Yeah.
0: I missed that. There's this, I'm sure you're your listening oh, yeah. everywhere, but like there's this boat that goes around Manhattan. And, and, and let me just say, it's something I've been dying to get my family on on various trips to New York, but we just haven't done it. Go ahead. Circle-wise. see every
1: neighborhood, and, and I think yeah. they send kids on it to get like perspective on the city they live in when you're yeah. from here. I, I don't think it's crazy to think that high school kids at some point will get to go on space trips and get the perspective that I got. And space technology is going to result in so many innovations that are going to be good for space and for the planet so that's the privilege that's and, the
0: exciting thing and it's interesting because you talk about this and, and one of the informal mottos of this it may become an official motto down the road is substance matter so i appreciate the deep dive into all this because you know it's like uh, howard hughes saying you know his his goal in getting um uh, advanced aircraft technology so that it could fly above Uh, above the clouds, you know, so you could get people more people. His goal was to get more people in the air. This is what this is what this kind of innovation does. Go ahead. You were. Yeah, No, I I, I I think we look at this the same way. All right. Let's let's let me shift gears a little bit, because I want to talk. You know, I wasn't going to ask you about this, but you're you're it's very clear. You're thinking about these things. I sat in. This has got to be three, four years ago. One of the benefits of living where I do now is we are a stone's throw away from NASA Langley. Um, and so occasionally get local speakers will talk about this. I had a guy come out talking about the Mars mission. Mm-hmm. And I got very frustrated with what he was saying because he was talking about using essentially, you know, solid rocket fuel engines to get us to Mars and um, the amount of time. And I sat here and, and thought, well, wait a minute, you know, if 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 getting into space. You know, and a, a lot of these journeys are about weight, right? You know, you're, yep, you're, you're all the that way, right? Of all of it, you're right. But going to Mars is also about time, right? Yep. The, every every day you're in space because we don't have suspended animation technology. Every day you're in space requires food and water. It exposes you to the various risks of things that might perforate a spacecraft, or yep. illness, or or equipment breaking down. And so I wanted to get your thoughts up about this. We really need, if we're serious about going to Mars, we need to have a, a, a real leap in innovation in terms of propulsion, don't we?
1: Well, we need a leap in innovation. A lot of things. Propulsion yeah. is definitely one of them. Yeah. We we need to think about how we take care of of human biology. Please. Yes. Hey, uh, you know, it's just an interesting kind of topic. A, a, a friend of mine um, in the space industry who uh, uh, works on um, uh, manufacturing ideas. Um, so getting getting people to be able to build things in space that maybe you couldn't build on Earth sure. made a really interesting point to me about evolution, and what is the one constant in the evolution of all life on Earth? It's not temperature, it's not pressure. The atmospheric pressure has changed. It's certainly not the composition of the oceans or the air. It's one g. It is oh yeah, sure. Gravity of Earth, and like like we're gonna have to think about, and people are doing this research, like how we keep ourselves and food and sure. things in space, and it could it may very well be that we learn about ways to grow food. Or I'm um, uh, a huge supporter of, of this thing, water.org. Yes, I want to talk to you about that. Which is trying to make sure that like the one out of nine people, which is a lot of people who don't have access to water, like get it, well, there's no faucets in space. Yes. So you have to think there's a leap in reclaiming and purifying water Absolutely. and managing food. That's the kind of thing that I really feel like is going to benefit life on earth. It's going to solve problems here. Um, and, and so I, I think people sometimes... Um, and I love like foundational research, right? We yeah. talk about like a science nerd. Yeah. But not everybody realizes that quantum physics. Leads to microchips getting smaller, which leads to your iPhone, which leads to social networks. Like yes. These technologies have emerging behaviors that come out of them. Right, Urban space is going to be no different. That's where I think the some of the benefits.
0: Oh, are. Right, I mean, and of course the 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 um, uh, we have the precedent already. Right, we know that that our space program of the nineteen sixties and into the early nineteen seventies led to a number of of, of massively innovative technologies, yeah. and of course the the irony is. You know, we now have uh, uh, so many more times the computing power in our in our smartphones than they did to get us to to the moon.
1: I I just have to give you such a good one on that. Yeah, please do all this stuff in medical research and wearing sensors. You know the sensors that tell you how many steps you took those are the piezoelectric sensors that were developed for the apollo program to look at the attitude of those ships and now they're so small and they help us figure out who's fallen at home and needs yeah it's gonna be like again you gotta think in these (laughs) large time frames it becomes really exciting
0: glenn true story i have in my car i got a new i got a new car um, a new used car uh back in the spring it's a toyota fj cruiser and one of the things that i got was a replica apollo capsule switch set that i could i could customize right. and i don't know if you're familiar with what happened um um uh if you uh if you uh, about the apollo 12 mission they got hit by uh they got hit by lightning and there's a, a, a SC, uh sc sc to aux switch so i have that in my in my in my car now so That's awesome uh, sort of the level of my nerdness you know before we before we move on to the trip let's talk a little bit about water.org because um it's one of those things that a lot of people don't understand. Now, obviously, there are a lot of a lot of environmental issues that are out there. The, the, the you know, we I don't want to get into a political debate about about climate. Um, but but, you know, to me, the, the work of Bjorn Lomborg, who's the Swedish environmental scientist, uh, you know, he he surveyed uh, scientists around the world. Access to clean water is, I think, the most pressing environmental problem that's out there. So so let's talk about the work of, of water.org and what you guys are doing.
1: Well, So um, uh, I really think, and again, I, I'm, I'm just such a huge uh, supporter of water.org because, A, you, I, we clearly agree about that. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, it's not a political debate no. uh, as long as you don't talk about why. But, yes. but the answer is this is a problem we have to solve. Yes, And, and I think what water.org realizes is that um, not only is this a problem we have to solve, but but solving it actually creates almost like what I was saying about science, these emerging benefits and we should think about um, not just not just pure charity, but charity that fuels industry to yes. solve them. So Water.org is really interested and, and has been hugely successful in doing things like micro loans to communities. I love it. That then can drill wells. And, you know, let, you take a community where maybe um, and this is actually a, a, a true story um, uh, uh, from somebody uh, from Water.org. Like, uh, they met a, a young girl who had spent hours a day getting clean water for her family, walking to get it. Yeah. Now you solve that problem of access to water. What have you also created? You've created three hours a day for this Absolutely. young girl to go to school. And she wants to become a nurse and move to a city and create sure. more GDP and health in the country that she's in. Like these emerging things, when you deal with the bottom levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Absolutely. You know, yeah. And water and food, again, these are things that we are going to solve as we reach out of the atmosphere, too. Like that's what excites me. And, and, and when you find people who understand that innovation um, and industry um, can actually be the ally of doing good things in the world, that gets me that gets me fired up. And that's why I love water.
0: You know, it's it's funny because the folks I've uh, done a lot of work with uh, William and Mary's Global Research Institute, it used to be called the Institute for the Theory and Practice of international relations and they're using I mean, they're they're deep thinkers which is great they they've they doing a lot on on blockchain and blockchain solutions to to world to global problems but sort of talking about these issues of of microloans and how that could be it just massively impactful anyway we, we may we may have to get water.org and and, uh, and the GRI together let's let's Dude. go back to let's go back to the space thing for a okay. minute we'll we'll come back to water later on um so so you you, you get accepted what's, what's the process like? I mean, we, we want to get to the point where you're going up and I, and again, I want to be cognizant of your time, but, but uh, what's the process like once you, once you get accepted yeah, to the so, day you're going to go up? So, so there, there's, there's just a
1: couple days of training that you have to go through, um, to, to go on, uh, the Blue Origin flight and look, uh, uh, Bill Shatner did it. He's ninety. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Bill is in great shape for ninety. Um, <laughs> we
0: all we all wish we could be in that level shape when we're ninety. Yeah, I think so. so,
1: but but I but I also think the fact that we um, in the last flight, uh, Wally Funk it was eighty two when she went. Like, oh. we can send people who are not the the astronauts that you think of in the right stuff who have sure. done every little physical thing, because I, I actually aviation has become a hobby of mine. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're a private pilot. So, so I've done zero G stuff. I actually um, do a ton with zero G. Um, actually, also kind of interesting. Like they they just did a flight where they took people who were blind and deaf and disabled and uh, differently able and put them wow. in the zero G plane. And, and you know, oh, some of these things around access, people don't always connect. But I've done some zero G training with them. I've done some high G stuff. I understand how to communicate in an aviation or aerospace context. So I think I was really prepared. Sure, but. The training is about really understanding the mission, understanding the the craft. You sit in a simulator. If you saw any of the interviews that, yeah. that we did, it looks like there's this capsule behind us. It's not the real capsule. It's a, a perfect engineer sure. of the capsule. So you figure out all your motions getting in and out of the seat. You figure out your, your and you bond with um, the other people you're going to be up there with. And you figure out your plan together. Like we all, we all were very focused about using the time to look out the window. Yeah. Which, what you would you imagine sure. um but but actually bill um uh william shatner a yeah i get it bill is fine <laughs> it's confusing to me that i refuse to refer <laughs> to william shatner's bill sometimes but i get it but my friend bill um sure. suggested like when we we're at the very top of our orbit we decided we'd do it at apogee um we would stop looking at the windows individually and we'd make sure that we had like a moment of camaraderie yay uh, it, awesome. it was such a good idea. Like we had such a kind of human experience too. Um, so you kind of think about your plans and get ready, and that and and that's the couple of days you know leading up to the actual launch. Sure. Making sure you know what you're doing and you can spend every last microsecond getting everything you possibly can out of the experience.
0: Wow. Yeah. And and that's and that's just I'm just sort of sitting here. I know. Wow is is an understatement in, in all of this. Um, I want to, you know, we'll go here first. So, yeah. uh, folks, um, uh, Glenn and I had a a friend in in high school named Gabe Weiner. He was a year year ahead of me, two years ahead of of Glenn, who was right, Glenn, the ultimate the ultimate Star Trek buff. I mean, ultimate Star Trek, oh, ultimate Star Trek buff. Um, um, in fact, true story, he had tickets to the New York premiere of Star Trek IV. This dates both of us. Um, and he had a, he had a, 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 a group trivia contest to see who he was going to take. I lost miserably. Um, but, but so did you, I mean, was there a moment where you were thought, or did you, do you think now, I mean, boy, what would, what do you think Gabe Weiner would have said? How would he have reacted to you going into space with Shatner?
1: So, so okay. So, so uh, besides being a, a huge Trekkie, yes,
0: uh, Gabe was also like a, a
1: Fantastic technologist. Yes, I think I, I think I learned my first Unix like uh, shell commands <laughs> from Gabe Weiner, um, hanging out, playing with with AUX Apple yeah. Unix on um, at, at his place um, after school. And sure. I think I honestly think that he would have loved the idea of getting to to know the guy who played Captain Kirk. Yes. Um, but I also think what he would have really appreciated is this transition of like something that was portrayed in science fiction becoming real becoming science fact and and I, i just i think the more people uh identify is probably the wrong word but have that that kind of science fiction um, inner core where they sure. love that, which I certainly do. And then they see something like this happen. They realize that, that stuff that is dreams, whether it's curing a disease that nobody thought you could cure or putting people to actually like normal people to go up into space. Like yeah. the, the, the imagination of these things is important because it inspires people for it to be real. And I hope that like 55 years, Bill has been playing Captain sure. Can you think of all the people who now can get inspired by that? Yes. Like, it's amazing that that. I hope that becomes a virtuous cycle.
0: And, and you think about this, right? Where we we're just talking about in terms of uh, the eighty-two-year-old who went into space as well, and and this this idea of differently-abled people being able to go into space. The, the, you know, it, this is this is right about sort of democratizing it, making it accessible to more and more people. And and as we know that life expectancy, age expectancy is gonna is is skewing upward. Uh, we are going to be we know, right? They've said, I think at the the world's first hundred and fifty year old has probably been born already. I mean, you're in life sciences. you can talk well, about well, think about it this way.
1: Um, again, simple math, but I, I I actually went and looked like uh, we're close enough in age. We can both use this rounding um, yes. to, to to decent fractions. There are twice as many people on earth now as there were when you and I were born. Wow. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, I, I don't, I mean this in a biological way, not a political way. At the end of the day, we, we are a colony organism. You know, yes. I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think, you know, uh, termites wake up and go, um, wow, it's great to be part of this colony. They wake up and they say, Hey, I'm going to go off to my job moving sand. Right. And like, and, <laughs> and, and, and so there is, I, I think this kind of greater humanity um, you know, I think if we were writing a science fiction book, we call it like the light of humankind. Yeah. There's a thing that we are all part of. And, and we have to think about keeping that in an environment where we're, we're healthy and happy. Again, not in a political way. I'll no, just no, tell no. You, when you look at earth from space, you know, that really visceral sense of the yeah. word home, like you feel that. And sure. it, it looks small and fragile in a way. That we need to turn you know as much of it into a game preserve as possible, so we can we. It, it, Blue Origin has a um, a mission statement that is um, uh, helping it, getting millions of people to live and work in space for the benefit of Earth. And I have my own addendum to that, which okay. is which is getting millions of people to live and work in space for the benefit of Earth. The way humanity wants to sure. live on earth right you know paving the planet is not going to feel good Yeah. Um, you know limiting the number of people that uh, the number of children people can have is not going to feel good there and, you go. and our termite colony i think has eaten through the log and maybe we ate through the log behind the log and being able to reach outside of the zero sum game of what's enclosed in our atmosphere and discovering technologies that will benefit us with the stuff on earth and getting manufacturing that might be damaging here or just not nice here. Out of the atmosphere and finding materials that we need rare earth metals and hydrogen knocks like these things are going to be really important to, to keep that humanity thing that civilization
0: we have to remember that pollution is waste right ultimately and the more you can reduce waste the better off everything is and the better off the bottom line is and finding ways to use that waste in innovative ways yeah. And I appreciate this idea. We have to be a prosperous society to be an innovative society. So, yeah.
1: and 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 you know, if we're going to live in the in the kind of abundance that results in everybody being able to to f- have the most fulfilling, happy life possible, that's also like the water.org stuff. And why yeah. I do a ton of stuff in education, we need to get to that bottom levels of, of the hierarchy of needs of, of of food
0: and water and shelter, and then the ability for people to learn. And- Glenn. Okay. dare I say it, that it's a Roddenberry-esque vision of the future. And I mean that in a good way. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so let's talk about this. So, okay. The day of the launch comes, you know, yeah. you and Jesse Lunenpack go to the launch complex. You brought a couple of people with you, didn't you?
1: No, I brought it, Yeah. So it, it, it's kind of like a litany of, 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 people who are are close to, to me and, and my, my
0: personal journey to get there in science. Actually, J.B. Zimmerman was there. Oh my <laughs> God. wait, wait. wait. That's why. So, Jay, so folks, JB was large and in charge. He was a year, a couple of years ahead of me, more than the, uh, his brother was in Glenn's class. JB was, well, was like best friends with since since pre-kindergarten. So, so, like- so, so I was talking about him the other day because I was talking about my, my, daughter was looking at Columbia and I was talking about playing laser tag with J.B. Zimmerman yes. on on the Columbia University campus, which if you think about the level of incentive, these were the black laser tag guns running around the Columbia campus in the eighties. Yeah, it was a different time. How we, yes, that's, <laughs> that's exactly right. And the idea was we play until we got kicked off campus, which was usually in the second game or so. Um, that's yeah. that's why. But, but the point is, folks, J.B. Zimmerman, uh, always into engineering always had the, the cheapest. I mean, literally would not pay more than $50 for a car um, and, would, and and had this crappy car that he'd outfitted with like these racing seat belts. Just a neat guy. Anyway, oh, that's so wild. So JB is- and, and,
1: and a great technologist. Exactly.
0: Uh, and a, actually a pilot
1: now as well. So somebody wow. who loves space and aerospace. And so uh, Jesse, JB, um, uh, people who uh, I've met along the way, my closest friends in New York City, um, my business partner Tarek, who I have spent 22 years sharing an office with, it's part sure. of the MediDate story. Um, my my girlfriend Leah was there. Like, you know, the, the, seeing somebody That's smiling right. at you, and like like you know, giving your friends a hug after you were off the planet. I, I even for 10 minutes. I'm telling you, it's like seeing the Earth from space. Sure. It's just just different perspective because you your you're mind- new eyes.
0: Yeah. 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 Oh, really, really oh, special to have all my friends there. All right. So you're strapped in. So talk about talk about the talk about the flight.
1: So yeah, I, I'm strapped in as the as the countdown clock, because you have it in front of you, like l- keeps losing digits. <laughs> I'm I'm more and more excited. Like we go from like 10 minutes to 959 and we go from like one minute to 59 seconds. And um I I was I was trying to be as in the moment as possible but there're definitely moments I was like wow this is really happening. <laughs> out to like leave the planet and the the main engine start and at my seat was right next to the tower and you start to see the tower turning yellow and orange and red and it was it was actually a part of the flight that I was not intellectually prepared for. Okay. I, I was ready for what I was going to do looking out at the planet. Um, and and honestly, credit to to the way Blue Origin has thought about this this um, this journey. Like you're sitting next to this giant window the whole time. I don't think there's another ship like that. No. And and you start moving slowly. Obviously, you're under tremendous acceleration, and everything's human scale. You can see yeah. cactus. You can see bolts. You know, on the tower, and then you go through these scales, which you you kind of recognize. Like you start to see agricultural patterns and and hills, and there was this frontal system that I could see, like a a line of clouds. Yeah, and then you keep accelerating. You're still going faster and faster and faster. And your the angles though your your sense of speed your visual yeah. sense of speed is declining. Sure, and your physical speed is going up, and just the the visual drop away of Earth and and seeing the flat horizon you know, you don't see Earth like this, but you yeah. begin to see the curve of Earth. Yeah, and and that trip up it was like the, it was like being in one of those educational or or, or sometimes in a movie like the keys. Oh yeah, something. But that's you. Sure, and it was just. Extraordinary. So the earth's not flat. I want to be really clear about this. Okay. I can I uh, as a scientist, I can <laughs> confirm that the earth at least has a bump.
0: Okay, that's good. <laughs> right. It's just where you are. It's a, it's like <laughs> a pimple. that's all I saw. A massive, a massive zit. It, it, uh, it, yes, it, got it. It, it,
1: it. It's a reasonable hypothesis to yes. say that that implies that there may be more roundness than what I, <laughs> more roundness. I I how many G's did you pull on the way up? So the, the way up is about three. Um and you're and you're on your back. It, yeah. it, even on the way down when you, you pull you five, you pull it for like two seconds. Like it wow. it, it, it you definitely five G's, you feel it, but again, you're cool. on your back, which is the easiest way to do something like that. And it's like, um, you know, if you um the analogy that uh crew crew member number seven, yeah. um this am- amazing person, Sarah Knights, who trained us all. Um, the analogy she gave us is if you throw a lot a rock at a lake, the rock hits the top and moves quickly and then starts to settle yeah slope to the bottom right okay. you're in the you're in the rock and the lake is the atmosphere and interesting. so the, that, um, that first moment of deceleration is the 5 g's it happens very quickly and then it's much more gentle.
0: you know it's interesting you say that because a lot of folks seem to forget right that the atmosphere has mass i mean it's right. it's it's a liquid essentially i mean we know it's a gas but it's <laughs> but you hit it it's like because did they ever do the Ublak experiments at fieldston yeah of course yeah. So, you know, it's like folks, if you, you make a cornstarch slurry, I'm mean, gonna have my hand out here, and, and it's a cornstarch slurry, oobleck, like the Dr. Seuss thing. And the harder you hit it, the more uh, the more hard tough it, it is. But if you sink into it, it just it just goes. But it just goes.
1: And so you so you you, the, you know, the, the atmosphere starts very thin. Um, and and so you get this sense, you now you're back strapped into your seat. Um, and I guess at some point we, we should talk about the top, but but, but sure. you are your seat and you get that whole movie that I was just describing. Yeah in reverse. And the sense of speed as the wind noise is going past this capsule. I, I it, it wasn't scary speed, it was exciting speed. Sure. And, um, and then the parachutes come out, and you you gently float down. Actually, it was so here's an emotionally interesting thing that happened to all of us, I think we get uh, we get we hear from uh, Capcom. So the people yeah. the person on the ground who talks to everyone in the capsule. It was a wonderful uh, Navy uh, test pilot. The Total, can I say badass on your show? Is total badass. Of course, cool. yes, you uh-huh. can. Uh, um, so uh, Kevin says to us that the 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 capsule, uh, sorry, the booster is successfully down, and it was the booster is this is a robot, right? Yeah. It's a, a robotic <laughs> of the spaceship, and we're like, like yes, like <laughs> it was part of our team that got us to space. Absolutely like, we, sure. Very attached to, to the to the. Um, the automated part of this thing. I don't know if that, what that says about science fiction and C-3PO and R2D 2 but I felt a little bit
0: of of that. Yeah, no, no, I get that. And you were about to say something about the top of the capsule. Talk about that.
1: Oh, so, so so, um, it was really awesome. I mean, and that was the part that I at least had my, my plan in my head for. And, um, I'm, I'm in microgravity, so I, I've got to do something um, that's not just sitting in my chair sure. in the window. So uh, uh, I think there's some of it on actually some of the Blue Origin uh, videos online. Oh, like yeah. I, I kind of turn myself upside down or orient myself upside down to earth. And I, I just, I think there's this one moment that, um, that I think will haunt me forever. Like it was the, the, the ultimate piece of this where it was just the emptiness and fast blackness of space. And I think it's my mind playing tricks on me, but I feel like the, the blue and the white and, the, and the, the yellow and brown and green of earth, I think those colors were more vivid than I've ever seen them before. They probably were. And, it's, and it was just hanging above me with this yeah. tiny little line, which represents the atmosphere. And, yeah. and, you, and you know what, again, it's like, uh, forget about the politics of why, why it, it happens or who's at fault. But when you see the atmosphere that small and you realize how how little of it there is, you go, wow, we really need to
0: make sure we do a good job taking care of this thing. Yeah. Like, otherwise, it's like space balls where someone's gonna come in and suck it all out. Yeah, I I, I, get right. that. I mean
1: and, and yeah. so it was this very visceral moment. I think um, it was really nice to have actually Bill as part of our crew because Chris is an engineer. And Audrey actually is an attorney by training, but yeah. spends her life in engineering and operations. And you know, I think about science all the time. Having somebody who thinks about emotion. Yeah. And the expression of it professionally was such a wonderful thing, and I think you know if uh, if people haven't heard Bill talk about it, um, he, he really expresses that feeling of welcoming and you know, safety that that you my, felt that moment.
0: My dad and I talked about this yesterday uh, in the car, and I, and, you know, about how because I told him you and I were going to be chatting, and we were just sort of talking about this, and he says you know it was you know it's very clear, you know, his emotional Shatner's emotional state after he got up, he was clearly very moved by all of this. Yeah. Have you? Do you? Yeah. I mean, I do. You talk? Have you talked to him, or do you trading yeah, I mean, emails with him? Yeah. I mean, we. But we. We are all you
1: know connected and, and friends wow. now. And actually, I'll tell you. So, so Bill had this idea that we have this moment at the top of our flight, and as we were under the mains, um, Chris suggested that we have another moment as a as a group before we got off. And and uh, Jeff Bezos comes and opens up the capsule and welcomes us back to Earth, and we unstrap and we did this like group hug. And, and I mean, we were all, we're all crying. I mean, it was just to be able to, to get this different perspective. Sure. Honestly, like we were talking about gravity before, like the, the human body, right. Is, is set up to function in one G. Yeah. I'm not sure the human brain <laughs> to, not, to see that distance and to see those angles and to get that perspective, it's going to be something that we're going to learn. And, and I, I feel like I've got a sense of, and actually a really interesting sense of that quick 10 minutes of, of zooming out, seeing it and zooming back. And I came to imagine if you've been on the International Space Station for a couple of months, like Sure. But you hear astronauts struggling with being articulate about how you feel about yes. the overview effect. And I get it now. It's just... I think people, people need to see it. And I want people to see it.
0: Let's talk about before we because I want to talk to you about the uh, systems and metadata and Carnegie Mellon and, and, and entrepreneurship in a second. But but you know, you get back, you know, the first night, I, I mean, I don't know if you were staying in a hotel down there or when you got home. I mean, are there those moments that first night and after where you say, holy cow, I, I've been into space.
1: It's still happening.
0: Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I'm sure.
1: Yeah. And 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 again, it's it's you know been uh, a week and change, a couple of weeks now, um, and I, I think it's still settling in, and I'm not sure if it's ever going to fully settle in. And I don't mean oh, that way. I just I, I just um, it, it's why I get so excited now. I thought I'd be excited about it, and now I'm even more excited about it. This I I just think you get these data points. Um, that are that are unexpected. And I, can I, can I tell you a quick data story, please. Of course. I, 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 Actually, it's a good segue into talking about metadata. But go ahead. Okay. Actually, yeah. Truly, truly, it is because I'm I'm very a quantitative guy, like statistics. I work in in statistically showing that therapies are safe and effective for people. Yeah. And I will admit that I in my life had been um, pretty dismissive of people who do qualitative research until sure. until a qualitative researcher said this to me. And they said, well, you know, you can look at a uh, distribution of human intelligence and you can tell me what the average is and what a standard deviation is. And you can sit there with your, with your formulas and, and you know a lot. But if I give you the one qualitative research data point that there was somebody as smart as Albert Einstein, knowing that that point is somewhere on that curve, tells you something about the nature of human intelligence that yeah. in your zoomed out statistical view you wouldn't know. Sure. Going to space has given me these data points that I just didn't realize existed in terms of how I think about the individuals around me, people as a, as, as a, a civilization, the planet, even how I think about technology, um, even how I think about things like water
0: and, and food Sure. Or, just it just has changed me i don't know how else to say it yeah, i mean, no, I'm still, you, you're you're see so glad you said yeah no no but you're seeing the world through new eyes and that's 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 there's a you know and it's good because you know you think about this right it's not just about paying money to have this experience right but it is paying money to have an experience that totally, I'm not going to say, totally changes your outlook, but completely refreshes your outlook. You know, it's one of those things where it is fundamentally money well spent. And not again, not that I want to talk to you about the, the no, cost, but, it, but, it, but that's exactly it. It's
1: 100% it. worth it. And, yeah. and it's also as, as one of the early people doing it, it's spending money, so, so it will get cheaper and scale and so yes.
0: more people can do it. Right. And that's exciting to me, like, okay, I wanna ask you an engineering question before we get to metadata. Cause one thing that I, I, I keep wrapping my head around is the concept of the space elevator. Yeah. Right, which is this idea that you have uh, platforms that are connected connected by a very long, I mean, essentially a very long string yeah. when you take an elevator. How, I, I try to wrap my head around how this works because I, I don't understand why they don't fall down, why they don't spin off into space, why they don't get ripped. Talk about, I mean, not that we have them, But it just seems to be because, right, this is the thing that will reduce the cost of getting into space because you'll just be able to take an elevator up. But talk about this. If we could ever build one. If we could build. I'm not
1: an aerospace engineer. (laughs) I'm a biology guy. But to, to at least my my engineering layman's understanding you know that, that's exactly you know you, the idea is right think about it as like a, a ball on a string exactly yes and and earth is swinging that string around but we need to we need to develop some very strong strings to do that yes um, which I, I i don't really think that, that <laughs> again maybe there's people who are building them right now but I, I you know
0: you certainly can't go to uh to home depot and get one of those right I now know. i mean we're talking about this is what we're talking about innovation and nanotechnology yeah. and but
1: look but that's that's an interesting science fiction that yes. people talk about
0: and again I I just did the science fiction become become science, so I'm not ruling that out by any stretch all right um, this is why you and I need to keep having these conversations so let's talk about this you went to Carnegie Mellon you're now on the board of trustees there you 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 love Carnegie Mellon as much as uh, me and my family love William and Mary which is a good thing to, to to hear and understand um but you went you know talk about this journey my listeners love hearing about entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship you were and I will say this I meant to say this before, You were ahead of the curve on this concept of big data, data and data analysis um, is is the hot industry now. You founded Metadata in 1999. Tell us about that.
1: So um, I I do credit uh, Carnegie Mellon for making me kind of who I am in a lot of ways. And it's it's a a university that has a lot of really diverse um, capabilities that are accessible to students. So it was somewhere with a great theater program. And that was exciting to me because we we did it together like we yes. did it the theater seven high school. Um, and growing up in New York, that was an important part of my life. Um, it's a university that has a uh, tremendous um science programs, but also computer et- and engineering programs. And so, I did biology. I actually thought I was going to do chemistry when I went to Carnegie Mellon. Okay. Um, the the uh, inspired by lots of people at Fields, including the late Charles Snyder. one was- Charles Snyder, of course, yeah. yeah. And and so I, I thought I was gonna go doing chemistry. I got excited about biology, um, but I also was able to do some computer science on the side. And <clears throat> excuse me, just like just like Gabe Weiner, I had my and JB, I had you know my my Commodore 64, those guys in <laughs> apples. And, um, and you know, I I always I always loved programming and would always try to, I don't know, my first reaction was program myself out of a problem, a problem, yeah. you know, what a, a fun problem or, or a school problem. And so I go through Carnegie Mellon, I've got my biology um, undergraduate degree, I think at this point, I'm going to get a graduate degree in biology and spend my life doing academic research. Sure. And I'm sitting um, at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center uptown doing prostate cancer research. And I have a refrigerator full of uh, blood samples from patients who um, were from before they went uh, into uh, having a, their prostate removed, which is still not a, a something that I would wish on anybody, but sure. 20 years ago, it was a big deal surgery. Absolutely. Um, and sometimes people would have the surgery and it would turn out they still had prostate cancer. And it was because you couldn't find the tiny little micrometastases or potential for micrometastases that was circulating through their blood. People are now doing this with circulating tumor cell assays and looking at, at, at sequencing individual cells. This was a very early... Um, kind of prescient idea along those lines. And so all the blood was behind me, the assays were on my lab bench in front of me, there was a shared Windows 95 PC in the back of the lab. Um, So that dates it as well. Sure. And I had to literally get in an elevator to go to different buildings to get access to some of the hospital systems that I needed data from to transcribe things from medical records. And I was sharing a lab bench, with Etika Gucci who was a resident in the urology department at the time. Uh, and he was like me, somebody who who thought about coding as a way to solve problems. And we started to compare notes and it turns out that what was happening in academic research as understaffed and underfunded as it might have been was pretty much the same problem as what was happening in ind- industry research. Sure. It was this problem of, of all these connections and all these possible places where errors could come in, in terms of transcribing and moving data around. And I used to always give this example. It doesn't have to do with the fact that it went up and, you know, the, the rocket that Jeff Bezos's company uh, created. But I, we would say to people in the, in the 90s, if you can buy a book on Amazon, which I think was the only thing you could buy yeah. on Amazon then, like, why can we not use that infrastructure to run research projects, sure. And we, we through a friend of ours at the hospital um, met his college roommate, who brought some some uh, business savvy and an in, in investor perspective, having uh, worked in in on investments, including not just technology, but also in the the. Uh, life sciences uh, industry. Um, Tarek Sharif, we met after work, and like literally 22 years later, wow. Tarek is like my my best friend. We sure. share an office that doesn't have a wall between our desks. Nice. Um, and we we created this metadata thing. Um, it really focused in the first kind of 10 years of the company on connecting the professionals, the doctors, the nurses, the the statisticians. Then we realized, um, I literally remember listening to Steve Jobs, still live, obviously, yeah. at the time, talking about iPhone sales, the same yeah. way Tim Cook today talks about, you know, uh, iPhone sales, but to get people to write apps. Sure. Well, we heard that and we were like, oh, wow. The same way we connected all the professionals, we're going to be able to connect all the patients. Sure. So then we started to put, put things in the phones in people's pockets so they could wow. report their effects. And then what happened is we created to your, your question kind of about big data, we created this system where so much research was been, being done. And and again, I don't I, I don't want this to come off with any like self-congratulatory, no, no, no. Result, but like um, because I have a lot left to do in my life too. We're um, gonna right. talk about that in a second. Um but But you have a 50-50 chance of getting a a drug that's been approved in the last 10 years and the data that was used to present to regulators around the world through metadata. And we realized that with all that data, shouldn't we be able to do more interesting things? And, and because we have it all in one place. And what we started doing is looking at can we take data from Research Project One and apply it to things that we're trying to figure out in Research Project Two? Sure. Can we, can we take people who volunteered um, to be in a clinical trial and were given the standard of care? They were just given regular chemotherapy instead of some great new drug, because you need to have, or potentially great new drug, you need to have these two groups to compare them with. But can we? Sure. Not? Can we not take those patients and, and use their data so we can avoid absolutely having patients yeah. to get the placebo or the standard of care in the next trial, or can we stack data and and help people discover things about diseases that they didn't know? We actually uh, one of my uh, proudest collaborations over the years has been with a, a gentleman David Fagenbaum who runs this thing called the Castleman Disease Collaborative um, uh, uh, Research Network, um, and the, um, uh, sorry, CDCN, the yeah. collaborative, collaborative network. And it basically, um, we worked with him to take a rare disease, something that like 5,000 people get diagnosed with and actually start to subtype it. So you could figure out even with very small, small data, small yeah. number of patients, what patient would benefit from what medicine. Interesting. Um, and, and I just feel like this kind of big data world in healthcare, um, is going to result in the, the science fiction, of real precision medicine. Sure. Not, you ever, uh, for anybody did write a book about it, it's called The yes, Patient. That equation. was
0: my next question was going to oh, be right. about the patient equation. Yeah, so, so like I think this is the future. This is science fiction becoming science fact right. in medicine. I mean, it, it, we talk about innovation and we talk about these big problems. We talk about we we're just talking about water and innovation and how that's going to help solve this. I, I mean, we we are we as a nation globally, we are all struggling with this issue of how to provide healthcare to the most numbers of people in a way that doesn't bankrupt them, it doesn't bankrupt the government, it, it doesn't bankrupt, I mean, I'm not a big fan of, of the HMO model, but, but the point is, the only way we're gonna be able to solve these problems is by having a better understanding. And the only way we're gonna be able to drive innovation is by having access to better information, so. that's yeah, under- and-
1: and what, whatever solution yeah. whatever societal solution we come up with, doing a better job, <laughs> is going to help. Yes and, and to me, that kind of precision medicine definition of g- give the right treatment to the right patient at the right time as much of the time as you can is about individual outcomes. And the way you figure out how to do that is by looking at populations. Yes. So you know, so when you are talking to me, Um, as my physician, you know, you can you can say well Glenn these are the people who were like you and these are yeah. the things that worked for them and didn't work for them and and we're measuring the complete person not just the person in the doctor's office but how they think and how sure. they
0: even and, and I think that's the future of medicine. Yeah, my my uh, my wife is a physician she's a family doc and I think that this is the kind of thing that she would agree with you. In fact I'm gonna make sure after we get off of this I'm gonna go to Amazon and buy a copy of uh, of the Patient Equation uh, for yeah. her. All, sounds- all
1: proceeds from the book go to conquer cancer. The asco foundation so that's, that's excellent.
0: all right that's good to know. So, that. so what's so what's next man i mean you know you've had this life-changing experience you're seeing the world through new eyes yeah. is there another is there is there a science fiction book in the offering talking about these i mean what's what what what's next for you i i know you're you are the um uh i'm sorry i'm going to get your title wrong but you're you're required by the so systems you are now the, the vice
1: chair vice in healthcare
0: vice chair of life sciences healthcare to systems
1: yeah Um, uh, what's next for me is, is continuing to do the stuff that I do professionally. Again, I I feel like we're in a super exciting time in life sciences. Um, I've spent a lot of time, uh, very much inclusive of Carnegie Mellon, water.org, um, in terms of trying to really be an advocate for STEM. Um, again, all the, not every single problem, but so many problems can be traced back to fundamental um, needs that people have around the world that science, technology, engineering, and math can help solve. Yeah. And I think the more people who get excited about it, who who do it, um, the better. If I can use, it's kind of a negative example, but oh. you know, I know there weren't people involved, but you know, we we put a, a helicopter, a drone, we humanity yes. on Mars. Yes. And not and a hundred percent of Earth wasn't riveted in watching it, even Absolutely. though. You, you could say close enough to that was watching when we put a, a, um, Neil Armstrong on the moon. Absolutely, I yeah. People getting inspired and excited about about innovation as a civilization is something that I really wanna do my part to help catalyze. And so I'm taking all of this space stuff into what I do around
0: STEM sure. That's the next big thing. Love it, I love it. Hey, before I let you go, um, uh, Joe Algrant taking over as head of school at, at Fieldston. You, I know. I, I know, right? <laughs> A great a, a biology professor. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, so, I, I, so I, when when Joe was headmaster at Dwight Englewood, uh, he had me come in and, and talk about politics and bridging gaps and all of that. I'm so enthusiastic that he's that he's taking.
1: He's he's and, an amazing amazing teacher. I man. am
0: I am fairly certain. If you have not reached out to reach out to Joe. Because um, I'm fairly certain that they will have you speak at Fieldston all the time. I mean, you know, <laughs> they'll, they'll use you for as much as possible. Glenn DeVries, uh, 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 we, we have to want to make it really clear. Follow Glenn at uh, at uh, Captain Clinical on Twitter. Uh, it's 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 great to follow. Um, stick around for a second after I'm done recording. But but thank you so very much for, uh, for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much. It was really great to catch up with you.
0: Really appreciate it. And there we go. Stop recording. Awesome.